right, so Mesozoic mass extinctions. Okay, so you guys have seen this graph before. Uh, we talked about this when we were talking about the Paleozoic mass extinction. So just to remember, um, you have, you know, effectively uh, three main extinction events, the three big ones, and um, the, what am I trying to say? I guess the main thing for you to know and to remember is that, you know, each of those major mass extinctions basically mark the end of a geologic time period. So, um, except for like the Precambrian Cambrian boundary, the Ediacaran fauna went extinct after the uh, the end of the Precambrian. But I'm not necess necessarily sure if we like consider that a mass extinction because there wasn't a whole lot of life in the Precambrian to be killed off in the first place. But basically there's, you know, when you see a big change in uh, fauna and diversity, that is what separates each of the geologic time periods. So if you remember um, when we were studying the Paleozoic, there was a massive extinction that ended all the life or most of the life. And it mostly affected the oceans, not as much the land, but at the end Permian mass extinction, if you remember that one. And then um, there's always going to be a series of smaller extinctions throughout geologic time. So the end of the Ordovician, uh, there was a mass extinction. The end or towards the late Devonian, there was one as well. There was also an extinction uh, within the Mesozoic time period. So there's one that marks sort of the boundary between the Triassic and the Jurassic. And then another one, um, a slight one separating the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. And then what marks the end of the Mesozoic is um, the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So the big ones are the end Cretaceous, the one that killed all the dinosaurs, and we'll talk about what we think um, caused that. And then we've already spoken about this mass extinction, this big one, yeah. This was the other big one. And then here, that separates the Precambrian from the Cambrian. It wasn't, you know, it killed off all the Ediacara, which may have been most of the life forms, but there wasn't really like a whole lot of life to kill off. So it's technically not really considered a mass extinction, but there's definitely a huge change in um, diversity and biology going from the Precambrian to the Cambrian. So, and I just want you to know that because I do um, allude to that. Um, there's, I think, two questions on the exam where I, you know, kind of ask about that sort of stuff. So, a lot of the geologic time periods, they, the boundaries exist because the mass extinction took place or something significant happened. And um, you have different scales of extinction. So, you have really large extinctions and then you have smaller scale ones. But the cool thing, not necessarily the cool thing about having a mass extinction is... When you have a mass extinction, the what happens next is like a different road of geology. It's like you're completely changing evolution with each mass extinction. And because you're eliminating, you know, a huge percentage of the biota, like plants and animals that were living on the earth, that basically gives other groups a chance to grow and diversify. So it's not necessarily like, yeah, it's a sad thing, like a lot of animals die, what have you, but it's also when like geology and evolution takes a turn and other species evolve that like you never could have imagined. So with that being said, um, when the end Cretaceous mass extinction happened, it wiped out all the dinosaurs. And basically because of that, it enabled mammals to evolve. And if you think about it, well, you know, 
mammals during the Mesozoic were always small little rodents. They were never able to evolve because they were always getting eaten by the dinosaurs. So if you think of it in a way, and we're a mammal, maybe if the dinosaurs never would have um, undergone extinction, maybe um, mammals and humans never would have evolved because we would have, we, you know, mammals would have always just stayed the size as rodents, essentially. But doesn't that usually happen to it anyway? Like, mm-hmm. every time something goes extinct, it's always the little guys who get to, like... Take over. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So sometimes, like, just as a thought experiment, I personally think that, like, let's say, you know, with global warming or a nuclear war, whatever humans become extinct. However that happens, because I'm sure it's only a matter of time. I'm, I'm sorry, it's a bit morbid. Um, but it's kind of only a matter of time until something happens for a species to become extinct, because we see this over and over and over through geologic history. Um, it happens in hundreds of millions of years. We probably have the ability to accelerate that. Um, but, you know, I think personally, so let's say we do something and like humans are gone. Boom. I personally have always thought that like dogs and cats would take over and become like the next because they're really smart. They, they're they much stronger than we are. Like I'm sure that they could survive much harsher environmental conditions and potentially evolve. So I'm always kind of like giant dogs. Giant dogs. Yeah. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion that dogs and cats will take over the world and become like the next major species. But I mean, who who knows? It could be like something that something so tiny and minuscule, like you'll never even think. And then They're boom, cockroaches. cockroaches. <laughs> Those actually, if if we were to experience like nuclear war, I'm sure a cockroach could serve some population of cockroach somewhere yeah. could survive that and turn into these like massive bugs. So, anyways, it's just something. Um, it's much more of a um, like a thought experiment than anything, but just something uh, to be aware of and for you to understand. Just a takeaway message, like from this class. I hope I hope you understand that. Okay, so the end Triassic marine extinction. So this is that small one that happened that separates the Triassic from the Jurassic. So this is within the Mesozoic time period. It, it's not um, massive, but it it's significant. So what happens here? of marine genre become uh, extinct, okay? And these are the main uh, groups that become extinct. Um, And then these, the conodonts. The conodonts are like these eel. They're essentially like an eel. They have the body like a snake or an eel, and they swim in the ocean. They're not really a fish because they don't have fins, but their te- their mouths are full of these uh, teeth that are made out of appetite. And people study um, their evolutionary traits by studying the, the shape and the morphology of their teeth. So we don't really have a lot of body fossils because I don't think they had like skeleton or any hard parts. The only hard part of it was like the teeth. So it's hard to explain because we don't really have anything like it. It's almost like a worm because, you know, worms don't have like a backbone or a skeleton. It's like a worm with teeth, basically, but they're, they're big. Um, all right, and then groups that were decimated. So nearly extinct, but not entirely extinct. Those would be the brachiopods. Those are like clams, but just uh, different shell symmetry. And then the synapsid reptiles. Things that appeared and diversified as a result of the extinction. So you, you know, kill off a bunch of animals that allows new species to evolve and appear. That would be the ammonites that's sitting down over here, this guy. So these are essentially like squids with hard shells. 
Uh, the Bellamites, these are essentially squids with um, like a hard body part in the center part of it and they do not curl. So ammonites have a curl. Bellamites are just these straight um, squid-like animals and then it really allowed for the dinosaurs to diversify. All right, so what are the causes? So we weren't there. So 237 million years ago, we weren't around. So we don't really know for sure, but once again, we go back into the scientific method that we learned about on Tuesday. So what are some questions that you have or maybe some answers, some hypotheses that could potentially um, answer the end Triassic mass extinction? So it's unknown. It's probably the most poorly understood mass extinction. Um, one hypothesis is uh, global warming or CO2. And the way that they would put, um, have global warming or put CO2 into the atmosphere would volcanism. So all of a sudden, because of the breakup of the supercontinent Pangaea, did that cause a lot of volcanoes uh, to appear that basically would have put ash and tons of CO2 in the air that would have killed off um, a lot of animals. So that's one hypothesis. All right, so we don't really know a lot about that one. There's not really um, like distinct evidence in the rock record of what that extinction could be. We just see a change in, of biodiversity, so a loss of biodiversity and a change in the animals that are present, animals and plants that are present in the rock record. All right, so going on to the big famous one, this is the KT boundary extinction. This is referred to as the Cretaceous, the end Cretaceous. For whatever reason, they give Cretaceous a K instead of a C. Don't know why. It probably has something to do with like a Latin root or something. I'm not exactly sure. And then tertiary is uh, right here, and it's um, a specific time period within the Cenozoic. So within the Cenozoic, that's the period that we're in. We're right here in the Holocene epoch in the Quaternary. And this boundary, this mass extinction is right here. So approximately 66.5 million years ago. So at this boundary, 70% of all um, species were extinct. Those being the dinosaurs became extinct, the ammonites, the belemnites, the rudest clams. The rudest clams were the reef builders of uh, the Cretaceous. A lot of the marine reptiles, all the marine reptiles, and then uh, the pterosaurus, so the flying reptile. So the guy that looks like the flying dinosaur with the feathers, um, he was also killed off. Okay, so what are um, the causes of the KT boundary extinction? So this is the one that, you know, you see the movies. Um, I think it's even the Land Before Time. They talk about this. Um, so was it perhaps a greenhouse climate change in sea level? So was it, you know, CO2 rose, the glaciers melted, did that cause um, massive volcanism and extinction? Or could it have been a comet or an asteroid impact? So that's, those are kind of two hypotheses that people have. Um, so the greenhouse, the climate change. So where does the evidence exist uh, in the end Cretaceous that supports this hypothesis? So if you go over to India, um, there, are, there are volcanic deposits called the Deccan Traps right over here. And these are what the deposits look like. These are just all lava flows right here. It's kind of an older picture. 
So based off of dating these rocks using geochemical methods, um, we think that during the final three million years of the Cretaceous, that this part of India had a really high um, period of volcanism. And if you look at um, the size of India, so India is a huge country. This, this area, the amount of volcanism, that's a massive amount of volcanism. Uh, if you think about it, it would be the size of several states in the U.S. Um, it would have uh, erupted this much uh, lava covering this amount of land. So 2,000, so in meters, um, you multiply that by three to get it in uh, feet. So it would be 6,000 feet to 500,000 square miles, so massive. And when you have intense volcanism, it causes, it puts a lot of CO2 in the air, which causes the greenhouse gases to increase, the global warming to increase. Okay, so global sea level fall, another hypothesis. So sea level fall could be due to the slowing down of seafloor spreading. So when you have the seafloor that's spreading, it makes the oceans bigger. And if you decrease um, the generation of the mid-oceanic ridge topography, it basically, it, it causes, it allows the sea level to go down. So you're essentially, you're creating a bigger hole when you allow rocks to cool down because when rocks are hot, they kind of poke up out of the ground a little bit more. So if you kind of stop spreading, you allow those rocks to cool and it creates a bigger container for the ocean. So I'm trying to think of a way to explain it. Maybe if I draw a picture. All right, so when you have the mid-Atlantic Ridge like this, so a spreading center, the plates are going like this, you cause tons of volcanoes right here. And when you have lots of volcanoes, they build these land masses in the ocean, right at the center. And then eventually, if this builds up high enough, you're gonna have a place like Iceland. So it'll actually form islands. So Iceland is an example of this. And it's constantly erupting. New sort of little islands are poking up out of the ocean all the time. You can actually go here and scuba dive right in this crack and have like one hand touching the North American plate. So this is the North, let me throw this away. This is the North American plate. And this is the, um, the European plate over here. So you can literally scuba dive and be swimming right here. And you can touch with your hand on this side and touch your hand, I wanna do that. <laughs> That's on my bucket list. But anyways, so let's say um, during the Cretaceous, you slow this process down. When you cool these rocks, you allow these rocks to subside down. So what'll happen is, you know, you still have your spreading center it may not be as active, but everything starts to subside and collapse. So maybe you start to form debris flows. But as a whole, your island or your rocks, all this goes down. What happens then is when it goes down, it basically it allows the sea to fall down as well with it. So the sea level, because if you think this happens over like a really, really large distance. So what you're doing is you're essentially creating a larger container, you're giving water more space because this is shrinking and sinking down and it allows the water to fall down with it. So hopefully that makes, it's, 
It's not exactly like intuitive to think of it that way, but that's just a hypothesis. I'm not saying that that's the correct answer to explain it, but that's someone's idea. Um, let's see here. What are some other hypotheses? So you could have a decrease in the shallow marine habitat. Yep, so that's the same concept. So if you lower sea level, so if you allow the ocean to drop, so let's say when you have this situation, the ocean's up here, and then when you have this situation, the ocean will drop down to like here. So you have this much space. The, what this also does is, do you remember that one day when I was talking about decreasing the shelf? Mm -hmm. So if you get ocean to drop, the ocean to drop, this is the water ocean level. So this is the shallow marine. This is where a lot of animals live because they need the sunlight in order to live. Let's say you take this amount right there and you drop it, so now sea level is down here. Okay, all of a sudden, you know, this is this thick, this is way, this is way too steep. None of the life that lived up in here can now habitate down here. So that could cause um, a mass extinction as well. Just lowering sea level can cause certain individuals, some certain species to die because you, never, you don't have the shallow marine, the shelf anymore. And this is too steep and too deep to allow certain animals to thrive because the sunlight is, doesn't actually like make it down to the bottom. So sunlight, it, I think it only goes down not far. The light, um, it just doesn't, it's not able to permeate through the bottom of the ocean. Okay. So those are just some random hypotheses. They may not be correct. Um, the one that we think is probably the most correct or the best answer for the end Cretaceous mass extinction would be um, an asteroid or a meteorite hitting planet Earth. All right, so this is, um, it's called or referred to as the bolide impact theory. It was first suggested in 1980. So this is, I mean, this is pretty recent, you know, within the last like 40 years. It's pretty amazing. Um, and it was first proposed by a foram micropaleontologist. So if you remember the forams are those little tiny single-celled organisms that live in the water. So a guy that specialized in those. Um, he was looking for a way to detect um, how long it took foram-rich shales to be deposited uh, from the KT boundary in Italy. So he was actually like looking at uh, the marine species and whatnot, trying to figure out, okay, do I see a change in foram morphology over this boundary? And um, his father also suggested that uh, the amount of rare elements um, that he, you could potentially, a mechanism for that would be um, the rare elements that bombarded Earth from space. So this is like meteorites. Meteorites are full of um, elements, like iron and nickel mostly, but they're just, they have tons of elements in them. And one of those elements is um, IR. So if you look on your, let's look on our, the back of our books, IR, because we have the periodic table. IR is uridium, number 77. So he noticed that at um, this boundary, at the tertiary Cretaceous boundary, that there was a surplus of this element, 
iridium and that that's rare like that's not something you see why would at that time period you see a concentration of that metal and um yeah so it's 30 times down here 30 times the normal amount of that and why would you see that like that's really bizarre i don't actually know of any other time period um that they have found that so you have all these little clues um, this is the two guys, father, son. They're at the KT boundary in Italy right here. They can actually put their hand on it. If you go to um, Mexico, there are places in Mexico, all over Mexico that you can go and you can see it. It's really quite fascinating. Um, all right, so here is that iridium anomaly marked on a, um, on a graph. So basically what you have here is the concentration this is in parts per billion so this is called like chemostratigraphy basically um you are a form of it uh it's essentially zero you don't really see it and then all of a sudden at the end cretaceous you see a big spike in it and then you slowly see it coming back here and going back to around zero so this is just an indication okay we see this chemical signature in rocks that indicate something happened. And the cause is how would you concentrate that heavy of a mineral? Um, it must have came from something extraterrestrial. There's nothing on earth that can cause that to happen, to see that spike. So that's why they infer that basically it had to have been um, an object from outer space because um, meteorites and asteroids, they contain high levels of iridium compared to what we see on Earth. So it's kind of like these indirect lines of evidence. It's not super straightforward. Um, of course, whenever someone proposes a new idea in science, it's always controversial. So you always have people that just trash it and throw it down. Um, yeah, so, but for whatever reason, you know, some people are like, I think enough people were like, oh, this makes sense. Let's investigate it further. So if there's enough people that think, okay, that could be reasonable, then you'll have a bunch more scientists that go and investigate it uh, further. So, okay, you have this one observation. Then what you do is you have to go in and you have to look for other lines of evidence. So not just one, so you have several. These are some of the other uh, several types of evidence. So there is something called shocked quartz. It's a special morphology of quartz that they only find in association with meteorite and asteroid impacts. Shock quartz does not naturally occur on Earth. So they saw that in association with the iridium spite. Same with tektites. That's another type of rock that is associated with asteroid or uh, meteorites. They also saw that there. Carbon soot, they also saw tsunami deposits. I've actually seen a tsunami deposit uh, from, it's like outside of Monterey in Mexico. Um, in La Popa Basin. Do you guys know there's a big famous like climbing place, super famous climbing place out of Monterey. I can't remember the name of it, but if you go a little bit further beyond that, um, you'll see these tsunami deposits and they actually contain little pebbles of meteorite in the deposit themselves at that time boundary. So you have all these lines of evidence that are like, okay, this is, this supports, I mean, something really happened on the earth. All right, so then the last thing is, okay, so in order to know for sure it happened, you have to maybe find the crater. So where did it hit? You have to say, okay, if it was an asteroid, it was a meteorite, where on earth did it hit? Okay, so these are where all the iridium uh, anomalies are located. So they're all over the earth. 
here, but they're all at very specific locations. So that could, um, yeah, what does that mean? Why is it in all these uh, locations? So they think that basically it would have impacted uh, globally. So it happened all over. The Chicxulub impact is on the Yucatan Peninsula. So if you go, you can actually see it on, if you guys upload Google Maps on your phone, I'll show it to you. If you click over, so you're on Google Maps and you go to satellite view. I was looking at it when I was down there. And then type in, um, where do you fly into, um, what is it called, Cancun? Go to Cancun. And then once you're there, you want to zoom out. Zoom out, zoom out. Okay. Mine's taking a while to load because my surface isn't very good. Yeah. But literally, you can see this crater from... Oh, you might need Google Earth using a different... Yeah. I think you might need Google Earth because they have like a different... Oh, no, no, no. You know where Merida? That's where it is. That's where it's located. If you use Google Earth, I'll pull it up with you. I'll pull it up for you guys. Yeah, I mean, that's the city, but essentially on it's on Google Earth, but you can actually see like the shape of it from Google Earth. It's really cool. I'll pull it up on um, on there. It's much more obvious than on Google Maps. Anyways, regardless, it's super cool. All right, this is what shocked quartz looks like under a microscope or an SEM machine. So these, these right here. So that's evidence of an impact at this location. These are tectites. So these are little glass spheres that form uh, from melting created by uh, the asteroid or the meteorite impacting the earth. You get, it basically like makes these little like bubbles, these glass bubbles, it's crazy stuff. And then you also have charcoal or carbon soot. So this is a layer where you have the charcoal or the carbon soot from the asteroid hitting, hitting the earth. And then this is uh, the tsunami or the impact ejecta. So you see deposits all over, all over the place. Uh, this is offshore South Carolina. They drilled a core into the ground and they were able to see it there. You can see it onshore Mexico. Here is what it looks like, a site in Mexico. So it's not, it's not super obvious, but they can actually go up on it and put your hand on it. All right, so creating a tsunami. Um, it is estimated, so based off of how far away, so they found deposits, a tsunami deposit, all the way up to South Carolina, the, the, off the shore of South Carolina from Mexico. So this tsunami was massive. It went really, really, really far. They think that it had an amplitude of approximately 150 meters. So the wave would have been um, times that by three, so 450 feet tall. And um, it had a 300 kilometer onshore run up. So it basically invaded or deposited, the wave went 900 uh, miles on the shore. And then you would have had a backflow for many hours and many days. So you would have basically covered the, um, so how far inland would be 900 miles? That's really far inland, like the Gulf of Mexico. 
So that, I mean, it may have hit. No, I don't think we have evidence of it here in El Paso, but it would have gone really, really far. Um, and then once you have the initial wave, then you kind of have these waves that go back and forth. So it's like a constant thing um, when it's this big. We have not, I don't think our like human, modern human life has experienced anything like this. Like this is kind of something like you see in some of those Hollywood disaster movies that this is the level of, it's massive. Like it would be absolutely devastating if something like this happened nowadays. All right, so this is where the impact is. And um, they think, so this is where I've personally seen it in La Pova Basin in Mexico over here. They have uh, deposits of it all the way up here. There's a deposit up here, Brazos River, Texas, and then offshore uh, South Carolina over here. So that's how far the tidal wave would have gone. Absolutely massive. All right. So this is just going over uh, where the crater is located. I'll pull it up on Google Earth so you can see it. It's better than that. Okay. Yeah, so this is just talking about more detail of where it's actually located. Don't worry, I won't ask you anything on the details. This is what it looks like in Mexico. All right, so that's all I have for you. Um, I'll let you guys get started on your lab.